This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Shouldn't you be at work? When the seagulls follow the trawler, it's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. I'll have a low-fat pizza or something like that, or a few biscuits and some milk on a Sunday. And you can pair up if you like, and you can fucking pick someone else to help you, and you can bring your fucking dinner. Now, you know him better than anybody, probably. Do you back him to score quickly, yes or no? Yes. Oh, oh and he has to. No. Hello and welcome to a Quickly Kevin Will He Score bonus correspondent special. I'm Chris Gold. Join me as always, Josh Whittacombe. Hello. And a man who is fuming at the success of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer at Manchester United, it is Michael Marden. Hello. How are you feeling about Ollie? He is smashing it, isn't he? What a man. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's fun to be winning games and playing well, but I stand by it. We should have got Potch. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's enough topical football. That's yeah, enough that's topical enough. football. We can't move on to West Ham. We've got so much good <laughs> correspondence. Uh, that we like to put out these shows, you know, between the series just to keep on top of it. The problem is, the more these shows we put out, the more correspondence we get. So, should we just get straight on with it? I'm Jim Rosenthal, and this is the Electronic Post Bag. You've got mail. And it seems from the post bag that one of our most successful features ever is Strange Hill. I wish we'd spent more time thinking of the fucking name for it <laughs> but let's have the strange hill jingle please when when you think of that grange hill opening title sequence what's the thing that really sticks in your head for me it's the sausage on the yeah, fork yeah sausage, sausage on the yeah, fork sausage, sausage on a fork right jack diath hello josh michael and chris i was listening to a recent correspondence episode with your now semi-regular feature strange hill sparked up it's not going to be semi-regular it's we're it we've got it for the long haul it's the new long throws at school we used to play regularly play with a tennis ball as anyone who's brave enough to bring an actual ball in would see it fly over the playground wall into a disgruntled farmer's field or so their marked at max scuffed to bits on the concrete so far 
so pretty normal. This was until one day, one of the goalkeepers decided that he had a right to use his Tim Henman branded Slazenger racket to defend his goal as, quote, (laughs) it's a tennis ball. Oh man, this is the start of an episode of Casualty. This led to both keepers using tennis rackets within their penalty boxes. Oh my God. This led to more injuries than normal. Shins were regularly bruised when the goalkeeper went to claim a loose ball racket first. (laughs) Balls would fly at head height at great speed as keepers smashed the ball out rather than kicking it. And one of the games led to a severely dented tennis racket. A rule was even implemented where goals could not be scored directly from a goalkeeper serving it out with a goal kick. (laughs) It would, however, count if the ball took a touch from someone on the way in. After a week or so, the teachers understandably banned this hybrid sport. A week? (laughs) week. (laughs) They let it go a week. Fun sport, right? Um, playing with a tennis ball, like just then had a flashback, like 50-50s when you're playing with a tennis ball, just clashing ankles. Yeah. Oh, man. It's no fun with a tennis ball, is it? Nah, it's just not the same. Um, okay, this is another strange hill from Scott Innes. Your recent discussion of childhood misunderstandings of rules or elements of the game reminded me one of my own. I got into football relatively late at the age of 12 because I didn't want to look foolish in front of my dad in those early months by constantly asking him questions while I tried to bring myself up to speed, I decided to gradually pick up the various rules and terminologies by myself as I went along. Mostly, this was fine, but it did lead to one or two misunderstandings, the most prominent of which was when referees would decide to play in the advantage. For some reason, I didn't put two and two together to notice that they only made the arms-out play-on gesture immediately after a foul had been committed. You can all picture that arms-out play-on yeah, gesture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 For at least a year, I believed that what was in fact happening was the referees would sometimes become fed up with the defensive tactics of a team and were actually ordering them to play it forward and adopt a more attacking approach. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, I get that. Not once did it occur to me that this is surely beyond the referee's remit. (laughs) (laughs) I just assumed players were duty-bound to go on the tack whenever the referee demanded <laughs> I love that, like a conductor in an orchestra <laughs> dictating the tempo. Yeah. <laughs> but also, it would make sense, because whenever the ref plays an advantage, the team will kind of go for it and sprint yeah. forward. <laughs> so it would have made perfect sense to watch. But I guess that that's, that, is the, the, that is the seed of the, the signal, isn't it? It's like, go forward. So yeah, yeah, not, yeah, of course. It's not like it's a crazy suggestion. No. Like, it's not a crazy idea. Like, there's a, a grain of truth in that. There is. I, you can totally see how that would happen. Uh, one final strange hill. This is called, this is from Stuart Moffat. Right, confession time. I've never told anyone this except my dad who laughed at me. As a youngster, around six or seven, I'd never seen a live game, but due to my dad's Manchester United fandom, I'd listened on the radio. When a defender scored, I could not ha- understand how they weren't offside. I thought your position meant that you were limited to that part of the pitch, and therefore, if you left your section of the pitch, you were offside. <laughs> In my head, when Steve Bruce or Gary Palace to scored a header, they mu- they must have been heading it around seventy yards every time. <laughs> <laughs> that's from Stuart Moffat. That is a. That's an easy mistake to make, isn't it? Yeah, I guess if you've never seen a game and you're like you're a child and your brain is sort of filling in the gaps, there's definitely instances that that reminds me of one actually. My friend sent me um, 
he my friend adam uh, his younger brother Stuart, for years and years he thought that uh when teams played stoppage time uh it actually was called scottish time and he thought it <laughs> it, it, it applied to alex ferguson because he was scottish and they would allow it so that manchester united could win in the closing stages of the game i i like growing up i didn't really know what a professional foul was and I, rem- I remember um, there was one game in the early 90s where uh, David Sim- where West Ham played Arsenal and David Simon was sent off for a professional foul. And I vividly remember being in the playground saying, yeah, he got sent off for a professional foul, but not knowing what it meant. Oh, wow. What a vivid memory. That is the kind of thing you'd remember. Yeah, yeah. Just going, I'm going to say this, but I hope no one pulls me up. Yeah. On and did they? Nope. Got away with it until now. Um, if you've got any more of your uh, Strange Hills, uh, I'm sure you have, then keep them coming. Now, Ben Bright, subject... 90s football and pasta. In the QPR off-season, I've been enjoying the Patriot extras, but also found myself listening back to some old episodes. One of my all-time favourites is Tom Crane discusses the impossible job, and in particular the discussion on whether 90s footballers were obsessed with pasta. Let me tell you, they really, really were. From 1992 to 1996, I had a holiday job at the Porthouse Hotel in Histon, a village just north of Cambridge. Uh, the hotel had a deal with Cambridge United, whereby the teams playing Cambridge stayed in the hotel pre-match. They generally arrived mid-morning, had an early lunch before setting off for the Abbey Stadium. This was the height of Cambridge United's halcyon John Beck period, so we had some decent first division teams arriving. I recall Birmingham City having a flip chart out as they had lunch, and one player describing Cambridge United's tactics as, when they get the ball, they fuck it straight up the field. <laughs> I'd never heard the word fuck used in this manner and I liked it. Anyway, I digress. Back in your Series 1 discussion about 90s footballs and pasta, I served a lot of 90s footballers their lunch in the 90s and they were completely obsessed with pasta. What you have to understand is in the early 90s, pasta was a health food and football teams fucking loved it. We often served them plain spaghetti on brown toast. What? Could you imagine? So no sauce? Plain spaghetti on toast. I mean, just the visual of that, like the image that conjures in your mind is just rank to think about. At least like spaghetti hoops with a bit of sauce. I mean, the double carb is mind-blowing. Yeah. But also, I think spaghetti's the worst of the pastas. <laughs> but you've got, at that time, Michael, it was, the, it was the one that had come over first, wasn't it? It was like the Beatles in America in 1964 before the British invasion. Like spaghetti. I, I don't remember any other different type of pasta other than spaghetti until around 2010. I, I, no, I mean, I'd, I'd say but when I went to uni, but I at home, until I went to uni, I don't think I saw a pasta that wasn't at least seven or eight inches long. <laughs> he adds that one of the teams uh, were the 1993-94 double winners, Manchester United, who were playing a pre-season friendly against Cambridge, presumably as part of the Dion Dublin deal. Uh, this was the best team in the country, and they had spaghetti on toast. Oh, man. Um, Lucy Belden. Love the show. Whenever a new one drops, I download it to listen as I cook tea in the evening. When your most recent interview, uh, Patreon interview, with Phil Daniels dropped, I thought it said Paul Daniels. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we had that one in the can for a few years. I hit download and tried to get on with my work, but couldn't stop thinking about you having Paul Daniels on the show. I was fascinated to think he was a big Chelsea fan in the 90s and couldn't wait out to find out what he had to say. It was only when I listened to the episode of that evening that the penny dropped. 
Phil Daniels made much more sense. Paul Daniels had died in 2016. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to Lucy uh, for that. If we did somehow magically able to get an hour of Paul Daniels' time from the grave. Magically being the uh, operative word. <laughs> yeah. What would you, what subject matter would you tackle? Um, I just want to talk to him about his tricks, really. But then you're not going to get anything out of him there. Um, Favourite kit? Yuri Geller. I'd definitely oh, ask yes. him what he thought of Yuri yeah, Geller because right, he'd have some right. strong views in him, wouldn't he? I think Paul Daniels comes out of the Louis Theroux documentary very well. Yeah, a bit passive-aggressive sometimes. Yeah, but I think he... I think his relationship with Debbie is really heartwarming and really like true yeah, and, and life affirming. Nice, yeah, yeah. life affirming. And that she's trying to put this ballet together and it's not really going very well and Paul's really supportive. I think I think uh he came out of it very well. There's a bit in that documentary where uh you know uh you know the bit where De- Debbie's doing the ballet show and there's a trick in it that Paul Daniels is doing which is like a swan will gets pulled along on a pulley. Yeah. And Paul Daniels freaks out that they've captured the swan being pulled along on a pulley. He's like, that's the, like, you're showing my magic. You're like, clearly there's being pulled along on a pulley. <laughs> like, well, how else would that work? But I, I think magicians are madly protective. Yeah, I yeah. remember doing an Edinburgh preview with a magician and I wasn't allowed to be at the side of the stage. <laughs> because... That's so weird. It is well, odd, but, isn't it? Yeah. Because like, you, you know he's not a wizard. I saw, I've just remembered I've seen Paul Daniels live. I went to see him. He did Edinburgh one year. This would have been about 2011. And I went to see him at half two in the afternoon in a hundred seat kind of lecture theatre. It would have been 2012 because um, he went off script and uh, talked about how he'd bring back corporal punishment to deal with the recent <laughs> London riots. God. <laughs> so why, why is Paul Daniels playing a hundred seater in... Edinburgh was that sort of the level that he was at? By yeah, point, he just was. It? That's what he'd sell in those. It was just mad, isn't it? You'd think he'd be doing huge venues, but then yeah. I think you've got to remember that our podcast isn't in tune with the nation. <laughs> <laughs> I've told you about the time my mate met Paul Daniels, haven't I? No, this is probably like two thousand and four, something like that. And uh, my mate was at uni, and Paul Daniels came to do a show at Exeter University. Yeah. And uh, my mate's a, like big magic fan. Sat down the front, and uh, big magic Paul, fan. <laughs> Paul Daniels wanted someone to come on stage, so he puts his hand up, comes on stage, and he and he goes, "All right, give me give me your watch." And he takes his watch off. And this I can't believe I haven't told you this story. And uh, he takes my mate's watch off, puts it in the bag, hammers hammers it. Debbie McGee's there, hammers it, and then he looks in the bag and he, he like he whispers to my mate. I'm going to pull a watch out. Just pretend it's yours. And so he he pulls the, he pulls that different watch out. And goes, is that your watch? He goes, and the moment he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he goes, all right, we'll put it on. And he's like, just wait around after. I'll come. I'll come see you. I'll, I'll explain everything. I basically smashed the wrong watch out. What? It's like the implication. So that he he waited around after, and then and then someone comes out with a clipboard. He's like, oh, so Paul would like to see you backstage. And he goes backstage. Paul Daniels and Devin McGee's there, and he's like, I'm so sorry. It's never. I haven't done that in like that. Made that mistake in thirty years. Would you like to come out with dinner for me and Debbie? And, and what? My, my mate was like, "Yeah, I'd love to go. I'd love to go out." No. So, so he goes out for dinner. Him, my mate, um, Paul Daniels, Devin McGee. They sat down for dinner. My mate orders the pie, cuts into the pie. What's in it? No. What's in it? Oh, it's not going to be the watch, is it? Steak no. and kidney. Yeah, lovely, lovely. <laughs> so is the whole thing made up, Scott? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Really great story. Great shaggy dog story. Great shaggy dog story. The listeners, that's my gift to you. Um, 
Of course, Paul Daniels would make a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> this is called French Teacher Blows Final Whistle on Euro 96 from Andy Brennard. Evening chaps, love the show. I wanted to share with you a painful memory of the long, hot summer of 1996. Two days after the drama of the quarter final against Spain, our small group of Year 7 students headed to France for what was my first ever trip abroad. My main memories were of games of football played on unsanitary beaches, that uh, the most unsanitary beaches that France had to offer. Hours spent dodging litter and attempting to recreate the almost famous Davos Suker goal against Denmark. Disappointedly, it turned out that our teachers weren't quite as susceptible to being lobbed as Peter Schmeichel. Then came the evening of the 26th of June, the semi-final. After sitting in front of the Hotel Foyer TV for 90 nerve-wracking minutes, we steadied ourselves for another half an hour of sheer hell. That was until our French teacher stood up slowly from his chair, moments after the full-time whistle, announced that it was time for all the pupils to go to bed before extra time had even started. Oh, my God. We stared at him in disbelief, waiting for the punchline, but he was serious. The real tragedy, however, was still to come. Myself and a few mates skulked back to our room, consoling ourselves with the fact that one of the group had the foresight to bring a pocket radio with him. We huddled around him as the minutes ticked by and our nerves increased further. We held our breath as Alan Shearer volleyed across the six-yard box. Gaza slid in dramatically to bundle the ball into the back of the net. In our excitement, we jumped as one. The pocket radio was accidentally but violently kicked into the wall, breaking instantly. England had done it. They had scored the golden goal <gasps> that put them into the final of the greatest tournament ever played. Oh, my God. We began dreaming of watching England collect the trophy against Czech Republic at Wembley. <laughs> About an hour later, oh my God. our excited conversations turned to whispers as we heard some of the teachers coming down the corridor outside sounding rather more solemn than we had imagined they would. <laughs> As we got closer, we heard one teacher mutter a sentence I will never forget. Well, I'll be backing the Czechs to beat the Germans in the final. <gasps> oh, my oh. God. Oh, that's one of the most heartbreaking emails we've ever had. Would you have wanted that hour? Like, is the pleasure worth the pain? I was just pondering that in a sort of existential dilemma. Like, is it better to have loved and lost yeah. than to never have loved at all? I don't know. I I might have told this story once before, but when I was a kid, I had a dream that still sticks with me that I had a Sega Mega Drive and I had every single game that had ever been created for the Sega Mega Drive. And it was so vivid and I was, I was so joyous that when I woke up, I thought it was true. It was still true. And I ran downstairs <laughs> to the living room to play my sega mega drive i didn't even have a sega mega drive and i just burst i just burst into tears on the floor oh I, was, I was like Lord. i was like john heston at the end of planet of the apes like, no. <laughs> oh wow so i would say the decades of hurt the reality has caused me versus that 20 minutes to an hour of pleasure in the dream it wasn't worth it the payoff wasn't worth it yeah it's worse isn't it it's definitely worse to have thought you had it you'd done it yeah yeah. Oh, man. Now, uh, we were discussing an episode um, when I sat on the top of a cinema seat when I was a child and pretended I'd been to the cinema before. Yeah, it's a real highlight, I think, for, for both Chris <laughs> oh, and I. Man. Yeah, oh, this is bad. from Derek. Your story about cinema seats reminded me of a story from when I was younger. My sister was quite slight as a child and wasn't always heavy enough to counteract the folding mechanism in cinema chairs. This would result in her being swallowed up by the seat as it closed around her. My mum had to resort to make sure 
that she, whenever we went to the cinema, she would bring a particularly heavy handbag so that she could use it as an added weight of the handbag to keep the chair in a horizontal position. Love the show. All the best, Derek. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, hello, lad. This is from Sam King. Hello, lads. Hope you're well. I've just finished listening to your bonus correspondence episode on Patreon and was especially interested in your conversation at the start about people who listen to episodes of Quickly Kevin while out running. I am one of these people. As Josh outlined, it's a great way to take your mind off what you're doing and is far less intense than listening to music. However, it can lead to awkward situations. As I discovered while out for a run just before Christmas, I was doing my usual six-mile route and listening to the then-latest QK end-of-series quiz. One of the questions was, who was the first ever Premier League manager to be sacked? I immediately knew the answer, Ian Porterfield. said as much to myself as I went about my run. I presume one of Josh, Chris, Mark or Charlie Baker, uh, the two guests, would know the answer, but none of them did. And as they one by one gave Michael an incorrect answer, I became increasingly agitated, leading me to eventually saying out loud, Ian Porterfield, Ian Porterfield, (laughs) it's Ian Porterfield. Despite my agitation, I was pretty sure I was doing this quietly and again, very much to myself, but soon made aware this was not the case by an elderly woman who was walking towards me on the other side of the road. She was waving her arms in the air and looked panicked. I was naturally concerned, so hit pause on my phone, took my headphones off, stopped, and remaining socially distanced, asked if she was okay. I'm fine, dear, she replied. But are you? Sounds like you've lost someone. Lost someone, I asked in a state of confusion. You're shouting for Ian Porterfield as he came down from the top of the road. (laughs) Is he a friend of yours? Can you not find him? I stood there silent with absolutely no idea what she was talking about. Perhaps the police can help find Ian, she said. Ian Porterfield, is he a friend of yours? This was quite possibly the maddest thing that's ever happened to me. (laughs) Took me a few seconds to realise what happened. Oh no, I I don't need the police, I eventually said to the elderly woman. I was listening to a quiz. Ian Porterfield's the answer to one of the questions. Uh, She was now the one who was confused, as she was not a Quickly Heaven fan. Keep up the good work, Sam King from London. Nice, isn't it? Lovely, lovely. Now, this next one has been sent in, it hasn't been sent in as a do I remember this right, but it is a do I remember this right. Do I remember this right? 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 Right. My first ever game was at Gay Meadow in 1997 to watch Notts County play away to Shrewsbury. Unfamiliar with the vast majority of football goings on at the tender age of six, I witnessed something pre-game which I've never seen since in 24 years which followed. The transfer of Devon White from Notts County to Shrewsbury was announced on the pitch. Bear in mind, they're the two teams that are playing. This couldn't have been any more than 15 to 20 minutes before kickoff. I also have a faint, though probably untrue memory, of Devon White taking off his Notts County shirt and immediately replacing it with a Shrewsbury No, that can't be true. So I Googled it and I can't find anything, but he did go from Notts County to Shrewsbury. So if anyone else was at Gay Meadow in 1997 and saw Devon White transfer from Notts County to Shrewsbury live on the pitch. So what, he came came out in a Notts County shirt? And then pulls it off to reveal a Shrewsbury shirt. Has he travelled down on the Notts County team team bus? Like, did did he know, know he's transferring that day? Or have they sort of well, done like, the deal in the build-up? No, I suppose he's signed for Shrewsbury in the week. And then they've announced new signing. And it just so happens that his old club is also their opponent, right? I mean, yeah, that, that makes sense. It's less fun, but that makes sense. Yeah. 
I suppose. Also, he adds, Notts County used to have a pre-game baton race on the gravel beside the pitch. Four home kids against away kids. This was cancelled after one of the said children's heads was almost went through an advertising hoarding following a poor choice of footwear. <laughs> uh, XJ8 till I die, he ends. Okay, we've discussed at length uh, our favourite uh, stadium features. Um, this is from Joe O'Doherty. Hi, lads. Sure you're very familiar with the goings-on at Slovakian lower league team Tatran Kieni Balog FC. Means I'm surprised you haven't mentioned their curious stadium. Uh, here is a video. I'll just pop it on the group so you two can watch. Do you want me to describe what I'm seeing? Can you describe what you're seeing? A Victorian-era proper Thomas the Tank Engine-style steam train coming along the touchline, but between the stand and the pitch. So he's literally like so close. While the game's going on. While the game's going on. And the fans are cheering. Well, I've seen this clip knocking about. The weird thing about it is the game is still in progress as the train is pulling through the stadium. Surely if the ball breaks near the train, like that's dangerous because like a sliding tackle, you could slide onto the line. It's that close. Surely there's some kind of barrier up, isn't there? Or you would just stop the game while the train's going through the stadium, surely. But what, like when a car comes when you're playing in the street yeah, as a kid? Exactly all the players like go, whoa, 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 train, train, <laughs> yeah, exactly. hold your positions, don't move. Exactly like that. It's amazing. Let's add it to our most uh, bizarre football stadium. Now, hello, gents. On to a strange rule. My mum, who knows nothing about football, told me about when I was younger. She claimed that if someone scored and then followed the ball over the line into the net, it would be disallowed. It always makes me think of the Yakini celebration for Nigeria in USA 94, and that he was actually grabbing the net in rage. (laughs) Okay, this is from Dan. Uh, Hearing your listener, who was unsure uh, what aggregate meant, reminded me when my girlfriend of the time was trying to take an interest in the game I was watching. It's mid-90s, and we were watching a European match on TV when the commentator stated that goals count double in the away leg. What does the away leg mean, she said. Pausing for a moment, I told her that in European matches, the away team has to kick the ball with their weaker foot. Hence, any goal they score counts double. (laughs) She seemed to buy it. Rather helpfully, one of the teams was wearing a night kit, so I told her that the tick was so they could remember which leg they had to use. (laughs) (laughs) That's good banter. Yeah. I'm no longer with her, but I'd like to think she still believes this. <laughs> and over the years has passed on this nugget, possibly to their friends uh, when they're looking to impress a football fan. Okay, Chris, this is something about West Ham. I'm absolutely fascinated whether you know this. It's from Thomas Fenton. Dear Josh, Michael and Chris, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but on the last day of the 1991 season, the football authorities decided to engrave West Ham's name on the trophy mid-through the final Saturday's matches. At the time, Oldham were the only team who could catch West Ham and they were losing 2-0 to Sheffield Wednesday, but came back to win 3-2. And the wrong name was on the trophy when it was presented to them. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. But I did know that we were so that people thought we were going to win the league so much that when the players having not won the league got back to the dressing room, there was loads of champagne in the in the like there was a, a title winning celebration prepared in the dressing room. So and the players just cracked on. But and I had it, but they I just hadn't cracked heard. on. Yeah, it just cracked on. Well, we still went up. We up, just didn't go up, up as champions. Right? Yeah, we we went up, but just not as champions. But yeah, the players just had fully enjoyed the celebrations as if we'd, they'd won the league. Oh wow! But I, did, I hadn't heard that about the engraving. I'm surprised there's not more of that. 
they always like to start the engraving early, which I think is... <laughs> Just give it a few minutes. You've literally. How long is it going to take? Yeah. Why are you doing this in the last five minutes of the game? It's um, such a thing now, isn't it? Like, like when, uh, when Liverpool won the league, they cut to the, the, the people engraving the trophy. Like, but it was obviously after full time. They'd learn yeah. their lessons from 91. I mean, Liverpool win, did win the league by about 4,000 points. Oh, how does that work as well? Do you think they give the like? They, how do you book an engraver for the for the day? How much work? Do you think it's just like the guy from Timpsons who gets like a lovely day out at Anfield? <laughs> definitely, definitely. That's surely the dream. The dream gig, if you get into the engraving game, is that you get to go to the top sports events. When I saw that engraver doing it, uh, engraving Liverpool's name on the Premier League trophy, he was doing it freehand, and I was like, oh, it is actually quite a big skill, isn't it? Like, as if, if one of us tried to engrave a trophy, it would look horrific. Yeah. But they managed to get it into, like, a, a typeface. It should be part of the celebrations. The team get to do whatever they want to their little panel. <laughs> Have you heard the story that there's a dent in the Champions League trophy that from Harry Kuehl dropping it? Yeah, I think you've, I think you've said that to me. I mean, yeah. he, he, he doesn't deserve to have held it, really. Does. <laughs> Mad that he did. I also, it, it's not as big as it used to be. But the colour of the ribbons used to be a big deal when I was a kid. Yeah. Them getting the right coloured ribbons on the trophy was almost as it, like as big a deal as the engraving. I think we've danced around this issue. We never completely addressed it. Like, I, I don't like the way we, that trophies are given to teams now, like oh, on a big platform. It's so much better when they're more. in the crowd. So much better. I hate the jumping up and down on a platform. What, what is the most iconic lifting of a trophy? The Wembley one is the dream, isn't it? Really? Yeah. I mean, Bobby, Bobby Moore, the World Cup, that is, that's pretty much how you should live. Yeah, what was that? Are they just giving it on the pitch? What? No, no. Uh, he wipes his hand on the cloth because he doesn't want oh, to yeah, get yeah, dirt yeah, on the yeah, hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hand. Of course he does. Yeah, that's a good one. But even that, I would argue, Bobby Moore lifts it up with one hand and it's like, hey, but what you want, you want to do two hands together. And yeah. Up. Classic. I love the, uh, hey. Ray, Ray, <laughs> as it goes down the line. Then uh, when the manager does it like last, bit of fun. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, I also, I think a really iconic one is whatever the Mexico City Stadium's called. When Argentina win the World Cup in 1986, that looks like fucking bedlam when yeah. Maradona lifts the cup. I, it just seems to be like in a huge crowd of people on the pitch almost. yeah. I mean, the photos of that, that, that is such a good trophy celebration. Like the confetti in the air. Yeah. Oh, that's, oh, how, yeah. that's how you win a trophy and lift a trophy, isn't it? That's the one. Do you know what? They, well, I was thinking the other day, one thing that's disappeared. Do you remember the, the cup, the, the lid of the FA Cup being such a big deal? I remember like yeah. growing up, like who would have the lid? It was always the joker of the team would have yeah. the lid on their head. Bruce Grovelar, lid on his head. Where's the <laughs> lid been? When was the last time we saw the lid? I haven't seen the lid in years. Yeah. Is the lid gone now? I don't know. Or is I mean, it just glued on? I don't even know there is a lid. No, and I know, I don't want to sound like I'm an old man, but I think we've we've crossed this bridge. I think you really need to be photographed drinking champagne out of that trophy. Yeah, I don't understand why with the new Wembley they haven't kept the walk up to get the trophy. But no, it is there. They just don't use it. There is there is a walk up for the trophy. They just they just do it on the pitch, don't they? Oh, you yeah. see, you see the losing team get their medals up via that way but I think they give the winning team it on the pitch just such a shame there we go um Chris Perry long-term fan of the show this is from James Ashbolt my parents have been in the process of moving house and have been tasked with clearing out my childhood bedroom came across a number of old copies of Spurs Monthly from 1999 primarily purchased for posters of Spurs players to adorn my bedroom wall as a kid 
Flicking through the old issues, I came across a highs and lows section with Chris Perry. In the lows section, comedian Joe Brand features not once but twice for Perry as both the worst person to be stuck in a list with and also the worst TV character stroke personality. To name drop Joe Brand twice seems excessive. (laughs) And leads me questioning whether there'd been some incident that triggered Perry's dislike of Joe Brand. Uh, he adds, Josh, has Joe ever mentioned an unsavory incident with Chris Perry? I've never discussed it. Um, are any quickly Kevin fans aware of an incident that's triggered Chris Perry's hatred of Joe Brand? It seems Chris Perry is not averse to comedy, as the best person to be stuck in a lift with is Jim Carrey. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing else just maybe gives an insight into the mind of Chris Perry. He's more into age adventure or pet detective than have I got news for you. It's interesting, that, isn't it? I guess it's just with those interviews in like Match Magazine in the 90s, it's like you just you catch a player on a certain day. Yeah. Uh, if, if Joe Brown's got, got his goat the night before. He doesn't even really commit on other things. So the worst dressed player at the club is that everyone dresses well. Worst player in training, no one in particular. Very, very odd. So, do you remember, uh, of course you do, uh, David Boost and the David Boost, Boost, David Boost theme? I've still got some left in my cupboard. Yeah, so have I. Alex Middleton. Hello, Quickly Kevin. Maybe another to add to the album, That's How I Sing Music and Jingles, 90s Football Edition. After hearing the opening sequence to the sitcom Birds of the Feather for the first time in years, it came flooding back that I used to sing Chris Waddle I Do uh, to the show (laughs) theme tune. Oh yes, please. And now I've heard that in in I can't imagine the third show's theme tune not starting. Chris Waddle, I do. Um, despite its good and career that in, included the January nineteen ninety five Premier League Player of the Month award, tweaked the lyrics song composed in nineteen twenty three is still my favourite thing about the Geordie Lad. I love that. It's yeah. nice. I mean, there's too many syllables, but you know, I don't want to be pedantic. But I think it, I think there's almost like a kind of half beat before the the music starts so you're not trying to cram it in it's kind of like a yeah yeah, that's true that's true you you can squeeze in the chris without ruining the melody also it's two 90s things coming together so let's enjoy that well there we go um it's been an absolute pleasure catching up uh we do do have extra episodes uh on our patreon we've uh, this month we've got our uh review of escape to victory we've also got an interview with phil daniels we've got extra correspondence episodes and Ivo Graham and us going through the Steve Bruce Striker episode. Get over to patreon.com forward slash quickly Kevin if you haven't got enough quickly Kevin between series. Also, uh, if you want to purchase a quickly Kevin uh, 2021 calendar or a uh, Hitler's or a uh, Letters for Town mug, go to quicklykevin.com to our shop. It is all available on there. And also another piece of news. On Sunday, the 28th of February at this Sunday, 8pm, this, this very Sunday, we'll be having the fourth quarterfinal in our CM97-98 Cup. To get tickets, head on over to our social media on twitter.com forward slash quicklykevin or instagram.com forward slash quicklykevin. If you want to get a ticket for the Quickly Kevin CM9798 quarterfinal for this Sunday, head on over to Eventbrite. You can buy a single ticket for the event. It will start at 8 p.m. via Zoom. If you want to join the Patreon, you'll get all the live shows for free, including on-demand access to all the ones that have already happened. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash quickly Kevin to get a ticket there. 
And if you're a Patreon member on the 1st of April, you will get our second piece of exclusive merch. The first piece was the Quickly Kevin 2021 calendar. If you want to get the next piece, make sure you are subscribed on the Quickly Kevin fan club on the 1st of April 2021 and you will get a special gift. Exciting times. Very exciting. That's it for this week. We will see you this Sunday at 8pm for the Quickly Kevin 4th quarterfinal in our CM9798 Cup. Until then, Robbie Slater, see you later. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side by side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.